Well, friends, it's good to be in worship with you. If we haven't met, my name is Adam, and it's my joy to be senior pastor uh, at our church. I think as humans, we have a tendency to grow accustomed to things over time. Like the longer we're used to something, the less we appreciate it. Check out this clip I saw from NASA this week. On NASA's Perseverance Mars rover, we have not one, but two microphones. And these microphones are the very first instrument of their kind ever to go to Mars. I'm Nina Lanza, and I'm a scientist at Los Alamos National Laboratory. Hi, I'm Justin Mackey, an imaging scientist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory. We put together a list of some of the sounds we've recorded on Mars to date. So let's take a listen. This is the sound of wind on Mars. For the first time, we can hear the wind blowing across the surface of Mars to go along with all of the images that we've acquired of dust devils and dust storms over the many years of exploration on the surface. This is one of my absolute favorite sounds. This is the sound of a helicopter flying on Mars. We used this sound to actually understand the propagation of sound in general through the Martian atmosphere. And it turns out that we were totally wrong with our models. The Martian atmosphere can propagate sound a lot further than we thought it could. We've all seen these beautiful images that we get from, from Mars, but having sound to be able to add to those images, it makes me feel like I'm almost right there on the surface. Sights and sounds from another planet. Like, this is incredible. But when I saw it on my social feed, I was just like, you know, what day's Top Chef premiere? Uh, you know, like, when's, when's the next free agent signing in the NFL? I just kind of kept scrolling. There is a, uh, uh, a rover which was launched from Earth. Uh, the documentary we watched a couple weeks ago said it'd be like hitting a hole-in-one from Los Angeles to London. They've landed a rover on the planet, and it's got, like, do you see its little helicopter buddy? That's awesome. And it's getting pictures and sounds from Mars, and it's just like, oh, yeah, that's, that's cool. Now, don't actually raise your hand, but I'll bet we have folks with us who, anybody remember where they were when we landed on the moon? Like, I feel like if these pictures and sounds would have come out like two decades ago, that's all anybody would have talked about for two weeks. The longer we're used to something, the less we appreciate it. We've had a, a rover on Mars more than once since 2011. Uh, we've had so, we have so many entertainment options. Like I said, it was just one more thing on my, on my feed. It's kind of hard to break through to our attention sometimes. So what kind of things do you tend to take for granted? Is it technology? What about like your bed or your shower after a long trip? Anybody ever go camping or maybe you've been on a mission trip? There is no feeling quite like the post-mission trip shower. <laughs> it's incredible. Now, maybe you're newer to faith or you're investigating faith for the first time. But if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's easy to grow accustomed to God's grace. Do we take this concept of the longer we're used to something... We, the less we, we appreciate it, do we apply that to God kind of unknowingly? Do we take God's grace for granted? Do we fail to be amazed by the amazing gift of Jesus Christ? Now, I would say that's why we've all shown up. 
it's so good, good for you. But in our scripture today, we're going to meet somebody who definitely did not take Jesus for granted. And what I hope we'll discover together today as we study God's word is that the more we recognize God's graciousness, the greater our capacity for forgiveness. The scripture we're going to start with comes from the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor and he was a biographer of Jesus. He also wrote the book of Acts. And so if you really want to sound snooty, you can sound like you went to seminary and you can call it Luke Acts. You can impress your friends and let me know how that goes. It's like, Acts is like a sequel to the book of Luke. And in his biography of Jesus, Luke sought to share the good news of Jesus' life and teachings and his death and resurrection. Luke is one of four books called the Gospels. And that's a word that simply means good news. And so let's hear the good news with fresh ears together. We're going to start in chapter 7, verse 36. When one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him, he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Jesus and the Pharisees clashed often. The Pharisees were like the religious authorities, the most elite uh, uh, religious figures of Jesus' day. They did not believe that Jesus was a prophet of God. They certainly did not think Jesus was the son of God. So whatever the motive was for having Jesus over for dinner, I think is significant for two reasons. One, that the Pharisee invited Jesus. And two, that Jesus accepted. I mean, he's going into the lion's den. One of his enemies. But Jesus drew people to him that were nothing like himself. So I think it says a lot about Jesus that he was on the invitation list, even of those who opposed him. Now, reclining was the style of the day. Guests would lean with their left arm on a low table in the center of a room, and their feet would be extended out towards the wall. And so Jesus was eating with the Pharisee and all his company. And so you'll see this spectrum of unlikely friends, the, all different types of people that Jesus drew to himself. We'll see that on display in verse 37. A woman in that town who lived a sinful life learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house. So she came there with an alabaster jar of perfume. As she stood behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, we don't know what this woman's sins were. Some people speculate. I don't find it that helpful. We do know that Jesus' reputation preceded him. And when she found out where Jesus was going to be, she found her way to where Jesus was at. The logistics of first century dining are again revealed when this woman approaches Jesus' feet because those would have been extended out and accessible. And what, what she does after that may shock us. I think it would have shocked the people that were in attendance. Perfume in an alabaster jar would have been an extravagant gift. And, and her anointing Jesus' feet with her tears and her affection uh, were the ultimate show of honor to Jesus. This woman's reverence for Jesus was shown in her actions, and the Pharisee's character was revealed with his reaction. This is what he did. When the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who is touching him and what kind of woman she is, that she is a sinner. So Jesus either sensed or heard somehow what this man uh, was responding to, to the scene. And then Jesus addresses this man by name. So for most of my life, when I had heard the scripture, I assumed that when Jesus said Simon, he was talking to one of his disciples, Simon, also known as Peter. But he's talking to the Pharisee. He's confronting the Pharisee. He's addressing the host. 
and, and he does it by name. We're going to drop down to verse 44. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, do you see this woman? I came into your house. You do not give me any water for my feet, but she wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she had poured perfume on my feet. Hospitality was a key, key value in the first century. Water, oil, uh, greetings with kisses were, were very customary. And so this woman who was, who was supposedly so lowly in the eyes of the Pharisee and beyond redemption as a sinner, she showed more honor to Jesus than the host did and that the host should have according to the rules and customs of his day. So this, this sinful woman is kind of outdoing this supposedly upstanding Pharisee. And so Jesus is saying, hey, Simon, you got it backwards. Jesus continued, therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. So this woman's devotion and appreciation was shown in her extravagant greeting of Jesus. Those might have been symbols of her desperation. She was desperate to see Jesus. Now juxtapose that against the Pharisee. Who didn't ask to take Jesus' coat? Who didn't offer him a LaCroix to drink? He didn't do any of that. In the Pharisee's mind, this woman was so sinful, she was disqualified. She was an unwelcome guest. And his mindset reveals his own sin, which is his pride. This Pharisee doesn't feel like he has much to be forgiven for. That's what Jesus is telling him. Her sins, which were many, are met with extreme forgiveness. And she displayed an extreme response, extravagant love and appreciation for Jesus. She loves much because she's been forgiven much. But the one who's forgiven little loves little. God's great forgiveness was evident in this woman's great display of love. And I believe the inverse is true as well. The more we recognize God's graciousness, the greater our capacity for forgiveness. When we've been forgiven much, we love much. And that love allows us to forgive much in return because we understand how much we've been forgiven. This is one of the journeys every disciple takes, a journey of forgiveness, from forgiven by God to forgiving others. A journey of forgiveness from forgiven to forgiving. This is part of our series called From To. And that's what we're studying in the weeks leading up to Easter. That's a word called Lent, which is Latin for spring season. And in this series, we're looking at different journeys disciples of Jesus make as we journey toward the celebration of his resurrection. Now, a disciple, to define that, is someone who is committed to a process of transformation into the image of Christ for the sake of others. So disciples, in my experience, aren't made overnight. It's a process. And and we're, we're transforming into the image of Christ, becoming more like Jesus. And not just for ourselves, not just for our own salvation, but also for the sake of others. So once we've experienced forgiveness from God, the Bible tells us, to extend that to others as well. Colossians 3.13 says, Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. 
That's uh, pretty straightforward. I don't got any Greek to tell you about. There's nothing tricky about that. Easy to understand, harder to do, isn't it? Forgive as the Lord forgave you. How's that going? So let's dig a little deeper into what it means that God has forgiven us so we can understand how we can forgive others in response. In Romans chapter 3, we read this. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. It's a Hall of Fame Bible verse, Romans 3, 23. And it describes universal human failure. All have sinned. All have fallen short of God's glory. All have missed the mark of God's desire and command for how we should live our lives. But grace is also offered for all who are justified, we read. We are justified freely by his grace. Now, justified is a very, very, very Bible-y term. And for most, I'm 38, for most of my life, when I would hear verses like this, I'd kind of nod, oh, yeah, justified, yes, got it. You know that nod you kind of give when you're the kid in class and you don't want to be called on by the teacher? You're kind of, yeah, mm. yes, justified. Well, I, it wasn't until my mentor, Pastor Michael, explained it this way that it, that it kind of broke through for me. Justified. Let's say right here in service, uh, my wife, Sarah, or we get word that one of our kids had, would have some type of medical emergency. And if I got news that one of my kids was bleeding or whatever, and I stopped the sermon, just point blank, and went and tended to them, I would be justified in my actions. Meaning, y'all wouldn't blame me. I would be justified in doing so. Meaning, free from blame. So to be justified in this sense is to be blameless. Or in a word, pardoned. No consequences. Now, there are times in life where we try to justify ourselves, right? Oh, sorry, I was late because of traffic, or I forgot we skipped forward or fell back or whatever we're doing today, or please, I, that, I didn't mean to say that, I'm just really hungry, right? We try and justify ourselves sometimes. But in this equation that, that we read in Romans 3, it's God who does our justifying, We'll read part of that again and then move on to verses 24 and 25. All are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. In the first half of the Bible called the Old Testament, people offered sacrifices to God to understand that sin has a cost. Through Jesus, who came much later, offered as a forgiving sacrifice, he paid the cost for sin so that we could be blameless, so that we could be justified. And justified freely, not because of what we do or somehow that we earn this, but simply, as we read, to be received by faith. This is the forgiveness offered by God. Total, complete, and by faith. 
This is why we celebrate Ash Wednesday. This is why we celebrate Lent. This is why we celebrate Good Friday. This is why we preach about Christ's crucifixion during communion. So we don't get casual about the indescribable gift of God's forgiveness through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We grow accustomed to stuff and kind of get comfortable. We do all this so that we don't forget that we have been forgiven much. Now, will we do the same for others? Can you forgive as the Lord forgave you? The more we recognize God's graciousness, the greater our capacity for forgiveness. So when we have a grievance with someone, how do we respond? Do we extend a pardon or do we look for payback? I would define forgiveness as releasing your right to retribution. When you have been hurt, wronged, betrayed, you probably have several excellent reasons to want that person to suffer as they have made you suffer, to want to pay them back for what they did to you. But God calls us to a more excellent way because God pardons us from what we deserve. Now, we've done a whole series called The Journey of Forgiveness. We did this last fall. You can find that on our website. Uh, We got a week on each of the things I'm about to bring up. We also have another podcast called Layman's Terms, which I love because it's two normal folks talking about forgiveness, not just the preacher. And so if we're called to forgive as the Lord forgave us, how do we do that? How do we do that? Now, I would say for minor offenses or maybe even accumulation of little things, we just need to remember Colossians 3.13, forgive as the Lord forgave us. Like, I don't know what else to tell you. Yes, we should, we, should, we should forgive the minor things. But what about when the math doesn't add up? This is what I mean. Yes, we've all sinned. But you stealing a Snickers bar in middle school or getting a speeding ticket doesn't quite feel square with some of the things that other people have done that have made you suffer. So what do we do in our minds and our calculations when the math doesn't add up? For those greater offenses, this is why I think Luke 7, 47 is so important. The one who is forgiven loves little. And the implicated inverse, the one who is forgiven much, loves much. As we grow in our gratitude to God, we can grow in our capacity to offer forgiveness. That's part of what it means to be a disciple. Now, this is not through our own strength. This isn't just closing your eyes and trying real hard. We may not even want to do this initially. So this is sometimes in spite of our desires. But as disciples, our desires change as they move more towards being Christ-like. Now, I have two things that I hope to contribute to the historic Christian faith. And this, this concept of this threefold path of forgiveness is one of them. The other I'm going to give you for free. Here it is. It's a formula for how many pizzas to order for a group of people. Now, I didn't even put this on the slide. I want you to work for it. Here it comes. Are you ready? I have a PhD. In, I did youth for 13 years. I got a PhD in pizza. Here it is. Take the number of people you're looking to serve. Multiply that by 2.5 and divide by 8. Boom. 
Full, I'm telling you, it's guaranteed. Now, you can round up or round down. What do you think I do? That's right. That's right. Now, you're welcome. Now, my, other hopeful, my only contribution to the historic Christian faith is these stages of forgiveness. So how do we actually, when we read, forgive as the Lord forgave you, how does that actually play out? And this isn't from theory, this is from experience. Three stages. Stage one, vengeance, or what I call the red truck phase. This is where you have several excellent reasons to wish the person who has done you harm would just get hit by a truck. It would just make life easier. All over. She gone. He gone. Now, I'm not saying this is a good desire to have. I am saying it's an understandable one. One of the things I hope you hear me say a lot is we have no idea what people are going through. And I know this much of what some of us are going through just because they peeled back the curtain for their pastor just a little bit. And so I do not underestimate the depth of pain that we carry around with us. And I wanted somebody to tell you when you've got this feeling that you would love to just see that person disappear, I get it. So essentially, in stage one of vengeance, we want this other person to suffer as they have made us suffer. Stage two is, is obedience, or what I call the roll your eyes phase. With time, you understand that wishing for the other person to die is probably an overreaction. Or, in less of an extreme, you, you know cognitively that wanting the person to suffer as much as they have made you suffer is not what Jesus would want for you. This is where the eye roll comes in. Because Jesus says really annoying things like Matthew 6.14. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. And you hear that, and you roll your eyes, and they're like, Jesus, come on! Ah! Now, to be clear, I define forgiveness as releasing your right to retribution. And so you're moving from actively hoping this person suffers to no longer wishing that or working towards that. And this is done not because you feel that way, but out of obedience to Jesus. So this ain't about forcing your feelings a certain way, this is doing so purely out of obedience. And friends, don't underestimate how big of a step this is. Going from vengeance to obedience is massive progress in terms of forgiveness. Step or stage three, transcendence, or what I would call the fork in the road phase. This is when we, when we have risen above the hurt this person has caused us. It no longer determines our line of thinking or our course of action. Now, this takes place, in my experience, over a while, friends. And the grace and strength to do this does not come from ourselves, but only which God can provide through the Holy Spirit. And through this grace and strength that the Holy Spirit provides, we can actually come to the place where we offer radical forgiveness, not just out of begrudging obedience, but willful desire. We have transcended the need for this other person to suffer, and now we actively want the best for this person. Our desires have changed. Now, we've talked about this in a sermon series last fall. We, I try to touch on this two or three times a year as your pastor 
So I'm, I'm going to preach this until I'm done because I think there's no more universalist subject. And, and friends, it's so important because if we're, all, if we're all clogged up, if we're all occupied with bitterness and revenge and hatred and vengeance, it's hard for God to get in. It's hard for God to fill us up if we're already full of all this vengeance. This is why this is so important. And so some of this stuff with forgiveness isn't just about the other person. It's also about you. Because getting even does not get you anywhere. And, and so it's not just about this other person. It's also about the state of your soul. And if we're all filled up with, with desires of vengeance, it's hard for God to fill us up. And so I want to be clear about a couple more things. Forgiveness does not mean pretending nothing ever happened. Someone told me after the first service, you know, I can forgive, but I have trouble forgetting. I think that's accurate. I think forgive and forget is dumb. So if you've got a forgive and forget t-shirt on, my apologies. My experience, not how it goes. And I'm not suggesting that forgiveness means you forget. Forgiveness means giving up your right to retribution for payback. And you come to a place where you can actually wish this person well. And here's the deal. That all can take place independent of this other person. This only involves you. This is all how you and your desires relate to this other person. So the journey of forgiveness is really about a transformation of desire. I know somebody who preached on that last week. We move from, I want them to suffer. I want to forgive them because Jesus tells me I should to I want the best for them. Now, how they respond determines whether or not the relationship can be reconciled. That's why it's called the fork in the road phase because forgiveness only takes one person. Reconciliation takes two. I imagine it would be hard to reconcile with somebody who doesn't think they did anything wrong. All we can do is our part to be obedient to forgiving as the Lord has forgiven us. Friends, forgiveness is not easy. But getting even will not get you anywhere. Harboring bitterness and vengeance does not honor Christ and it will not set you free. Don't lose sight of God's amazing gift of Jesus Christ and his justifying grace offered to us freely. I pray that we would remember that we have been forgiven much and in return that we would love much. And everybody said, amen. amen. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for this place where we can be reminded, where we can celebrate, where we can feel your great love for us in this community together. God, as we celebrate the meal you gave us to remember by, I pray that you would, that you would provide whatever it is we came in needing. God, thank you for the witness of this heroic woman so long ago who did everything she could to get into Jesus' presence and showed us what it was like to not take it for granted. God, we don't have Jesus reclining in front of us at the table, but we thank you for the gift of your word. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for the community of the church which has carried the precious good news of Jesus down through the generations to us today. And so help us use all possible means. Fill us with your Holy Spirit as we empty ourselves of the desire for vengeance 
so that we could be your obedient disciples, so that we would be forgiving as we have been forgiven by you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.